Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. I think everyone loves this promise of being able to go home, whether it's people or animals or even aliens, uh, apparently, because those of you who've been around more than just a few years know all the trouble that we gave to just one poor guy trying to get home. And if you don't know who this pop culture icon is, this was horrible time. You, should, you could see it in the news. It was a terrible thing. He just wanted to get home. Uh, we just could, wouldn't let him do it. I, I was actually uh, fascinated with animals that can find their way home over great distances. And some of you have heard about these kinds of things. And so I had done a little bit of research on it. I just thought it was very cool. There was a dog that had been in a foster care home that he loved so much that when he was finally rehomed 11 miles away, so they put him in a car, they drove him 11 miles away, and he found his way back to his foster care home. He left his new home. He ran back because he just he wanted to go back to his home. I thought that is just such a sweet story. Um, and, then, and then there was the cat that found its way home after 200 miles. Now that's a little bit, that's a little bit disconcerting. So you can imagine be, deciding that you're finally done with your cat and you drive three, four hours and you shove that thing out the window and before you know it, the thing is finding its way home, and you, you come home to it kicking back and lounging back in the house. You're like, what am I going to be able to do to get rid of this thing? You know, I think about when we say to someone, uh, you know, they come over to your house, right? When Actually, there was a time when people used to come over to your house. Back, way back, it was like 2019, but you could invite people over to your house, and they would accept the invitation, and they would come over, and you would, like, share life together, and you would tell them, I kid you not, you would say, Something like, hey, um, we want you here to be comfortable, so make yourself at home. Make yourself at home, which meant we, we wanted them to be comfortable and we wanted them to make sure that they, they helped out around the house just a little bit. Um, if they're home, that's what they should be doing. And yet, here we are at a time in our lives where we have actually been home more than ever. Are you feeling more settled? <laughs> home is where we want to get to. Home is the experience that we emotionally crave, and yet we've been home a whole lot, and it doesn't really seem to be settling our souls. You see, we want what home promises us, but not even our houses not even where we live, will ultimately be able to give it to us. Some of you may have realized that the Kelly family has just surpassed the one-year anniversary 
of our house fire. And so a year ago, we had a house fire. And uh, so for, the, for most of the last year, this is what we've seen in front of our home. We, our home with a big fence around it now, dumpsters and, and you know, permit signs for construction that was going to begin, and then red signs telling us that the house was condemned. And we were fortunate enough to get a rental right across the street. And so we were able to watch, we've been able to watch this uh, whole thing unfold, which of course means every day you also see what's not happening and the work that isn't going for it. So it, became, it becomes very disconcerting. And so what I do during all of this time, I keep telling myself that, that one of these days we are going to be back in our house and construction has begun and we're remodeling it and then, you know, the electrical's going in and all that cool stuff and there'll be a big week insulation. So we're making some progress. And so I keep telling myself, as soon as, as we get back into our house, then I'm going to feel settled. Then I'm going to feel good. Then I'm going to feel settled. But, but is that really actually what's going to go on? Of course not. Of course not. It's what we tell ourselves, but the reality is that's not the emotional experience. Now, see, home is more than simply the place you hang your hat. It's, it's the sense of belongingness that gives you a settledness, a, a peace, a security, a refreshment. And if you have been blessed in this life with a stable home life, if that's you, if you're saying, yeah, yeah, I have a great, great home life, then what, what you're experiencing is just a little bit of a taste of what your soul ultimately longs for. If you have not been blessed with a great home life, then you are experiencing the intensity of, of the disruption that comes when we don't actually, when our soul doesn't actually rest for and rest in what it longs for but you see there's a powerful desire in each and every one of us that we want to find our way back to where we belong and it's deep and there is a longing and there is a gnawing and we will actually never be able to be fully refreshed until we get home. And the Bible, of course, has a whole lot to say about this kind of a thing. We're going to be looking at Psalm 16. So you can open up in a Bible to Psalm 16. It is one of my favorite Psalms. I hope it will become one of yours as well. It's called a miktum by way of background. So I read a whole bunch of commentaries this week thinking there was some great lesson I was going to learn and be able to share with you about what a mictum was. The commentators are all over the place. No one seems to know, and they largely say, don't make a big deal about it because we don't really know what it means. So I'm not going to. So there's a mictum, don't know what it means, sorry. The, the psalm is interesting because it starts as a petition, and we see a lot of psalms like this, and so you think that that's where he's going, that he's going to start asking God for all of these things that he needs, but instead... A, a pivot happens here right after the first verse, and this really becomes a psalm of settled confidence. And, and so you want to understand what it means to have confidence and to be settled in this life. Psalm 16 can point us in that right direction. So starting in verse 1, he says, Keep me safe, my God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, 
You are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. I say of the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones in whom is all my delight. Those who run after other gods will suffer more and more. I will not pour out libations of blood to such gods or take up their names on my lips. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body will also rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful one see decay. You make known to me the path of life, You'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. See, we all want good things. We all do. And behind our desire for home is a desire to be happy, which put simply is a desire for good things. That's what we want. Not a single step is taken where we are not trying to attain our greatest happiness. We want good things. And I don't mean just physical, material things. We just want life to be right and good. And the psalmist says, keep me safe in verse 1, for in you I take refuge. This is a little different from some of the other psalms. Many of the psalms, we sort of get an idea as to why he's crying out, what he's asking for. And so we'll get a little hint as to what was the situation or the circumstance might have been that caused this particular cry for help. And this one's a very general one, and we don't really have any contextual clues. It seems as if there's no specific challenge, but instead what we have is we have the recognition that there is always in this life going to be suffering and attacks and failure, and heartache. You know, people are already talking about when 2020 is done and all wrapped up. You really think we're done with heartache and suffering? <laughs> really? It's not the way of this world. If this year has taught us anything, it is that trouble just keeps on a coming. You might say, oh, well, that's, just, that's super despairing. That's not the real hopeful and encouraging message that I really want to hear. It may not be what you hoped to hear, but it is true. It is reality. Does that mean we despair? Of course not. Does it mean we live in fear? Never. Does it mean we have anxiety? No. The psalmist says, he cries out, he says to God, keep me safe. This is the word that is used for watching after, to guard after. It's as if when, when you lay down to rest, you know that God is on the job. He's watching after you. You know, when, you're, when you can't go and see your flocks in the field, God's keeping watch. He's making sure that nothing is going to happen that is outside of his will. Verse 2, the psalmist says, you are my Lord. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Just wrestle with that idea for a moment here. You have no good thing. Do we really believe that? That we have no good 
thing apart from God. Now, of course, I think most Christians, if you were to ask them about it, they would say, that's true. That's how I feel. Every good thing I have is a gift from God. The bad stuff, we blame on someone else. <laughs> we don't want to give God any of the credit for any of the bad stuff. We don't want to believe that any of the bad stuff could actually be good stuff from the hand of God either. And all of a sudden, we start qualifying this idea to death because there's all sorts of things that we begin to pursue that aren't actually God's good for us, and yet we continue to pursue them. We have no direct uh, explanation as to what we're supposed to do here or there. We're not sure, and sometimes we do contrary to what we know God would have us to do or what he's put upon our hearts to do because we actually are still trying to pursue good in other ways. So I'm not really so sure that it's true that we really do pursue all of the things that God would say are good for us. In fact, I think we're much more like verse 4. It says, those who run after other gods. Because I think the tendency of the human heart is to pursue anything that we think will get us good things. Whatever it is. Those who run after false gods. Because that's why you would do that. People pursued false gods. It's as if the, the language that he's using here, it's as if they can't help themselves. They're running after them. They're panting after them. They can't stop sort of grasping after the promises that the false gods make to them. People don't pursue false gods for the sake of a false god. They pursue false gods. They have idols in their hearts because the idol promises something good to them. That's why they do it. If you were in the ancient world, you would make an offering to the god of the air so that, you know, he would bring you, you know, rain in the right season or you would offer some sacrifice to the, you know, the god of fertility so he would make your, your family or your, your, your sheep and your, your, your oxen profitable, that he would make them productive, fertile. You might pray to the god of the sea if you had just invested a whole lot of money and put it all on a big boat to go do some trade somewhere, you would, because the promise of safety, security, wealth, it was, it was a good thing. And so you would do whatever you needed to do. You would run after that God. And of course, I still think we do these things. We don't offer a sacrifice to an idol, most likely. The vast majority of us don't have little statues and we don't go to a, a bunch of different temples and, you know, make some sort of offering, some libation of blood, a drink offering of blood that, they, that he talks about here. Because I don't think we see ourselves like this, as if we're running after other gods, but we actually will run after anything that the world promises will give us pleasure or joy or peace or security or rest. We've been faced with all sorts of these questions during our reconstruction, and it's revealing a lot about, about kind of what my own heart and the things I value or the things that I fear. And so, you know, our, our whole electrical system was, was uh, kind of fried out by the fire. And so the electrician is rebuilding our electrical system, and he asks a simple question, right? He's like, hey, so do you want a, like a shutoff or a, a transfer switch or something like that for a generator? You know, we just had the other power outage. We were in our rental and we were out like for 10 days and I'm like, of course we want a generator. <laughs> oh, yes, I should, we should get a, a switch because we were uncomfortable for 10 days. It was hot. And we could only run two of our window ACs off of this thing. 
Yes, we need a transfer because it, you know, obviously we need to have some level of comfort. And then, you know, they, they're putting in the soffits, uh, right? And, and so he says, hey, do you want to run some wires in here for security? Like, you know, so you can have like a security camera. And I was like, oh, we should have security. You know, you're right. I, you know, we should absolutely have. In fact, our car was stolen a bunch of years ago right in front of that house. Cheryl's car, some guy rifled through it. He got the, took the car away. And then like it was a couple years ago, someone actually broke into my truck and took my radio. Who does that anymore? That feels like the 80s. You're stealing car radio. I, someone stole my car radio, and I had to just sit in silence. It was absolutely horrifying for me. So I think I should get some security. So, yeah, i got to run some cable now to make sure, you know, I get some security. And then, you know, we, so our house had a, a wood-burning fireplace, and uh, our, we had a fire. Um, you'd think that we would be moving away from all sources of flame. But, you know, the insurance company's like, hey, are you guys replacing the fireplace? And we're like, well, yeah, we're replacing the fireplace. You know how cozy it is in that back room? Like, you know, so we're going to put a fireplace back in where the fireplace was, which is right in front of where the fire actually burned us out of the house. And the ironies are not lost on me, but I'm like, but I still want to be nice and cozy. I want to be comfortable in my home. See, we start to, we don't, these aren't even thought. You don't even question. You don't bring these up even to God. You're just sort of like, you know, you're, you're, you have these ideas about the world and the way it ought to work. See, whatever gives you just that little hit of dopamine. So what is it that you think about? What is it that you're planning for? What do you work for? What do you spend your time and your money on? So let's take a look at your calendar. Go ahead and flip through it. Where are you spending your time? And what does it tell you about the gods that you are chasing after? Where, go take out your credit card bill. Find out what's going on with what you've been buying. Where do you spend your money? Is it possible that, that this will reveal some of the gods that we run after? Retirement accounts, vacations, nice neighborhoods. It doesn't just have to be sex and drugs and day drinking. It could be all sorts of different types of leisures and lusts. The kinds of gods of this world that we run after. But then in verse 4 he says that they will suffer more and more. They will suffer. Those who run after these false gods will suffer more and more. Now this is it. I don't think this is a threat. I don't think he's saying, hey listen, if you run after these gods, God's going to smack you around a little bit. Which he could do, by the way. I'm not saying that's not what he's saying. I'm just, it doesn't seem like it. When you read the context to me, it, it sort of feels like he's saying, listen, you're going to run after other guys, you're going to suffer more and more. And it makes perfect sense. I don't think we always realize this because, you know, it, it's, there's a natural consequence to the lie. Right? If you decide to pursue some sort of false cure or preventative method, uh, method of, you know, medicine for COVID-19, if it's not real, it could hurt you. It's dangerous. In all of the medical world, you would never pursue a false treatment without consequences. And if you're pursuing the wrong treatment for your soul, there will be consequences. You'll suffer more and more. There are false beliefs and false hopes and false fears and, and, and all of them head to more and more anxiety and heartache and suffering. I was talking to a grandpa recently 
And he was lamenting that his granddaughter has to grow up in this world. He was just, he was just distraught over it. And in that conversation, we began to kind of wonder out loud together if this was exactly the world that his granddaughter needed to grow up in. What if it is, it is exactly that person in these days with these crises that they will need in order to find their true home? See, we don't look at those things and think these might be the good workings of a powerful God. And yet, the psalmist goes on to tell us that it is God alone who knows what is good for us. Psalm 16, 5, it says, Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Surely I have a delightful inheritance. I will praise the Lord who counsels me even at night. My heart instructs me. I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. All this language right here, you kind of group it up into one big category. It's, it's the, the portion, the cup, the lot, the boundary lines. They all point to the goodness of God in creating a home for the psalmist. See, this is all pointing back in the Old Testament to Joshua, Joshua 12 through 24, the distribution of the land. This is when the Israelites came into the new land of Cana and God, by lot, you know, by uh, the, the drawing of straws, kind of in our language, right? So you get a bunch of people together, somebody has to do something that they don't like, and so they draw the short straw. And so that's our way of like casting lots. And so it, in, in, in this day, the way that the, that the land was going to be distributed, they talked about these things as the lot is in the hand of the Lord. And so God would decide the future. You would go and see the priest and you would need to know, left or right, yes or no. And the, and the lot would decide it. And we look at it as a random thing, and, but the Israelites knew that God was behind the lot. And so the distribution of the land, his promise to you and to your kids, what kind of land, what, what the land would produce, what kind of security, if it would be defensible against enemies, all of that was in the hand of God. He distributed the land to his people. He determines left or right. And all of this language just points to this idea that the psalmist was saying that now we can trust in the goodness of God and what he has done. Now, this is so different from the people who lived in the land before them. Before them, the people who lived in the land, they prayed to the gods of the land and the gods of the air and the gods of the sea, and they, they offered sacrifices. And the Israelites were constantly tempted to go back and worship the gods of the land that they had moved into rather than the God that had brought them out of Egypt. And so he points to these ideas over and over, and it's a common theme where the psalmist is saying, I'm not going to trust in those false gods. Those aren't the real gods. Here, he talks about God. He gives them three different names. He talks to them as, about El, the mighty one. He calls him Yahweh, the one who said, I am to Moses and brought them out of Egypt. He calls them Adonai or master. He uses all these different ways to describe God. And he goes, he's the true God and he is the one that I am going to surrender my life and my future to knowing that he will carve out for me a good land, a good home. Because I know he is a trustworthy God. But so do we really trust God's ways over the gods of this world? We listened to Mahalia Jackson at the beginning of the message here. She was born in Louisiana, gospel singer during the 1950s and 60s. 
and she, her, her voice was so unique and so powerful. They said that they would, she, would lead, she would sing in a church and people would be entranced. They would just sense at a time uh, in culture where people weren't really into this kind of a thing. Every time she would sing, there was just this sort of spiritual power that was unleashed into the congregations. So, of course, people started noticing her and they started saying, hey, listen, we could, we could monetize this thing. You don't need to keep going around from church to church to church in the Midwest singing to little congregations. We could do some big stuff with that big voice. We could make some serious money. We could, we could get some real fame and notoriety. And she just resisted leaving her gospel music roots. She felt compelled by God that she was supposed to continue on this path of singing using her gift, her voice, to sing the praises of God. So that's what she did, and she continued to do it, and those big opportunities seemed to go away. Her husband pressured her relentlessly to monetize the gift that God had given her, and she continued to resist. And she said she is not going to pursue the fame of this world. She's not going to pursue the wealth of this world if it means compromising the convictions that God has told her what was her next step to do. And so she had this incredible resistance to the temptations of this world, this incredible resistance to the, the seduction for happiness in all of the worldly ways, fame and status and money. And I think these are powerful false substitutes for what is truly good for us. Now, eventually, while she was refusing always refusing to leave her gospel music origins. Mahalia, she started to actually gain everything that had been promised to her if she had simply gone the secular route and, and done the things that the big A-list names were calling her out to do. She started getting more and more notoriety. But now she was able to use her notoriety to sing her songs about God in front of an even broader audience. She started selling out, you know, record, uh, con, you know, record numbers uh, of albums, and she started performing be, be in front of world leaders and, and international audiences, and, and this queen of gospel. Everything that she had originally been promised was now sort of being poured out upon her, and she was able to hold fast to her convictions. But then something even greater began to form. Of course, she had come into her world renown as the queen of gospel during this very convulsive time of the civil rights movement. And because of Jackson's convictions and God's blessing, she was asked to participate in some of the civil rights marches, including what became one of the high-water marks of her life and the movement, the March on Washington. Dr. King uh, was very much a fan of Mahalia and her music. You could actually, this is her stand, sitting over here on the stage during the March on Washington speeches. And the story is told, of course, uh, this is Dr. King's incredible moment that he was reading a prepared speech 
And he was the last in a long line of speakers. It was supposedly a very a hot day and people were, the crowd was, was already fading and he shows up last on the docket or nearly last, something like that. And it's supposed to be like a four or five minute speech. It was well crafted and prepared and it was about a check that was, was written but now needed to be cashed. And, and somehow he was just feeling uninspired. And so many writers have talked about having been there at the moment that, that at some point something took place where he just sort of pushed his prepared notes aside. And there was a moment where something powerful and beautiful was about to happen. Someone cried out, tell them about the dream, Martin. Tell them about the dream, which he did. He began to tell them about the dream, what became arguably one of the most famous speeches, certainly in our history. The someone who shouted that word of encouragement was Mahalia Jackson. She had heard it before. She knew what was in his heart. She shouts out, tell them about the dream, Martin, and he pushes his prepared notes and extemporaneously starts to preach right there in Washington. What an incredible opportunity that she never would have had had she not resisted the other gods. Who knew that God would be pouring out these, these beautiful boundary lines for her? carving out for her in this world a home that would give her something more than the promises she had been made, but a hope and a meaning and a purpose that mattered beyond anything she could have dreamed. But, as we heard her sing in the troubles of this world, neither she nor Dr. King would ever really believe that this world would be enough. They continued to look to an even greater homecoming. Both of them and many others have fought for a better home for black people. Carving it out here in the U.S., that is their plan. And yet we still see injustice all around us. Even when we make progress, things aren't how they ought to be. And fighting to make this place our home is good and it is right. And we ought to do it. And every one of us ought to be a part of doing that very thing, of making this the most beautiful and perfect home for as many people as possible. That's absolutely our call. But we must never lose sight of a deeper truth. There is a deeper truth here that this is not our inheritance. This is not our inheritance. In this world, there will be injustice and pain and heartache. And it isn't just with blacks or browns. This is an unjust world for the Dalits in India for children being trafficked, for the unborn being aborted, for the poor being taken advantage of, for the martyrs who are still being killed, for their faith in record numbers around the globe, for the sick who have no access to health care, for the hungry who are continuing to starve in droves, 
Listen, God, he knows what is good for us, and he is pursuing our greatest good. And he is going to pursue it well past this earth. Because not even death is going to end God's pursuit of our greatest good. The psalmist goes on in verse 9, he says, Therefore my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay. You make known to me the path of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. This is one of the most famous Old Testament quotes. In our Bible scholars here, you Bible students, you know why, right? You know why this verse, this, this psalm is quoted? Because it's, it's a sign to Jesus. It's considered a prophecy of what would actually happen to the Messiah in Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 22, it says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him. And you yourselves know this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross but God raised him from the dead freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him David said about him and here's where where he quotes our psalm he says because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life and you will fill me with joy in your presence. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. See, not even death is going to end God's pursuit of your greatest good. Indeed, your death marks only the beginning of the goodness that God has promised to you. We have so much fear, we have so much anxiety, we have so much uh, worry about the future and about sickness and about death and about uh, a tumultuous society and the loss of things and the promises that aren't being being made or kept, and yet the promise of Christ's resurrection is that we too will have eternal life. This is not our home. And because Christ was raised, you also, as a follower of Christ, will be raised incorruptible. The way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians, he says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is useless and so is your faith. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. If your hope for the resurrection is all about what's going to happen here, you're to be pitied. Because in the end, it's meaningless. We will all die and the earth will be snuffed out in some horrible cosmic event and all of this will be meaningless. But the Apostle Paul says, no, there is life after 
death. Christ, he says, verse 20, has been indeed raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, Christ's resurrection, it means that your best life is yet to come. God is fighting for your greatest good and he will never stop pursuing your greatest good. Not even in death. Listen, God isn't shy in his promises to you. He's not timid in making bold claims about his love for you and about what he promises to pour out upon your life. He is promising you boundary lines, a land that is more beautiful and rich and enjoyable than anything you could have ever hoped or imagined. Trust in him for that. Look at what he says. Verse 11 in our psalm, he says, you will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. These are Bold and audacious claims. He's saying you have, you have thirsted for home and you have hungered for relationship and you have you've looked for everything in this life that is going to bring you some sort of happiness or peace and security and I am going to give it to you in a way that you would never even imagine, one that transcends this short little life and extends into all of time. Some of you have never decided to actually follow Jesus. What are you waiting for? You got a better offer than joy in his presence and eternal pleasures at his right hand? What are you holding out for? You really think all the pursuits that you've been going after, you really think that this world, 2021, you really think that's going to suddenly miraculously become something that you're going to find rest and peace and joy and security and confidence and pleasure and joy? No! Not even death is going to stop God's pursuit of your greatest good. St. Augustine, around 3 to 400 AD in his confessions, famous quote, he said, because you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Do you find yourself at all restless? You longing for refreshment of your soul? You longing for some sort of peace and some sort of stability? You longing? You will be restless until your rest is in God alone. Because you were made for him. You were made by him. And one day you will be fully and completely reunited again through the sacrifice of Christ who made a way back to the Father so that you and me, his prodigal children, could come home. Let's pray. Lord, what, what we are asking from you this morning is that you would help us live in this time between times. 
We have this promise that you've given to us, and yet we have to live here in this broken world. With all of its heartache and all of its misery and all of its injustice, Father, this is what we wake up to every day. These are the news reports that we see. This is the, the financial insecurity, and this is the health risks, and this is the, all of the stuff, Lord, that just wears us down, and yet you tell us to set our eyes upon you and to trust that you are, in fact, already working for our greatest good, and that, Lord, as long as we pursue you, you will continue to pour out your goodness upon us, even in ways that we don't understand or see the goodness in. We can trust, Lord, that you have never stopped fighting for our greatest good. I'm asking, Lord, that you would stir our hearts so that we might trust you more and more in that, that we might yield to it more and more, that we might rest more secure in you, that we might know that you are, in fact, our hope and our joy, and that these short, few hard years reflect, Lord, the fact that we are not yet home with you. We pray for your peace that passes understanding to settle upon us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.